Good evening. Happy to be with you this evening. Talk about the Dharma, my favorite topic. Um, I want to talk, I want to speak tonight about the, what we often call Dharma 101, which is the central teaching uh, that the, the Buddha offered after he began to see things a little bit more clearly after his so-called awakening. But I want to begin with a poem that I actually think captures the essence of what he realized. And perhaps this will make it a little bit more accessible to you. Recognize that what he realized is something that we can realize in real time and not something uh, that is just a philosophical idea. So I'll be talking about the Four Noble Truths and some of the afflictive emotions tonight, but I think the essence is captured here. And this is a poem by David Budbill entitled, Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around never leaving their bowl, I say, that's right. Every day climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, Hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> Truth is so simple, so accessible, but we tend to complicate it and, and search for the truth somewhere so far away when really it is all about coming out of the tangle, the narrow gravitational field of our, I call it our self-preoccupation, and opening in a very simple moment-to-moment way, open to the wider gravitational field of of truth, of the Dharma, of, of the way things are. And it's easy to talk about how simple it is and how accessible, but there are teachings because we are, we are habituated in such a profound way to, to miss this open secret, to overshoot this moment, to complicate our lives, to confuse our lives. And it all stems from simple little reactions that we have to those six experiences that are happening all the time. The whole of our life is six experiences. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing in our body. Wait, is that all? And thinking. And that's really all. That's all there is. The whole sense of our life as such a profound drama is an elaboration. It's a complication of this, the fact that there are these six experiences unfolding moment by moment, the last one gone, the next one unborn. And because our life seems so dramatic, in fact, doesn't, doesn't these, don't these last two days seem quite dramatic? When in fact, I always like to remind myself when I go through, nothing really happened had these six experiences over and over again. But the compelling nature of the of virtual reality, of the way that I, that I imagine it, and then the way that my body responds to what I imagine is going on, the way I think about it and the way I relate to it, it, it makes it feel as though I've been through, I've been everywhere. But really, what's happened? We've sat and we've walked heard a little dharma, ate some meals. 
But the fact that it is so simple and it feels so dramatic tells us that we, that we some, sometime, it, it un, makes, it, makes us understand how it is so easy to miss the, uh, the simple reality of the present moment. Here's a poem from Nagarjuna, who's considered the founder, you could say, of Mahayana Buddhism. And it's the way that we move from the simple experience that we may be having to the sense of being somebody. Because really, in a moment of hearing, who are you? In a moment of seeing, who are you? In a moment of tasting, who are you? Our simple experiences move completely beyond the drama of me. But yet, because we get triggered by these sense experiences, a whole cascading reaction, series of reactions happen, we enter into this drama. And he puts it like this, blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness, just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience. I crave to have, experience I crave to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So everything we are doing here is about the end of anguish, the end of suffering. We're not here to have a good time. Having a good time is a wonderful byproduct of being oriented to the present moment, being embodied, ceasing to be so much in contention with with reality. Sometimes the byproduct is you have a good time. But the heart of the matter is we want to end anguish. We want to end our contentiousness with reality. We want to be able to live in harmony with our life, inhabit our bodies, be able to tolerate the inevitable experiences that present themselves. James spoke last night, among other things, he talked about the fruit of of mindfulness. I wrote a few things down and I wanted to just review because it leads directly into the, the central importance in clear perception of things the way they are. The, the importance of that in the ending of anguish, in the release of our tight fist of grasping, the release of our heart. The tightness and the contraction in our heart is born of confusion and ignorance. It's born of clinging as he described to selves, to, to opinions, to, to views, to, to pleasures. But James spoke about the power of being able to, to see clearly the wisdom that can come through simply having the space to see what the nature of things are. To see, for example, he used the, in, in example number one about the unbidden nature of thoughts. You know, when we're carried along by the stream of our thinking, it, is, it seems so obvious that, the, it, that in the, our conventional way of viewing things that they're my thoughts and, and, I'm, and then there's a little agent in there generating them. I don't know if you've heard the statistics that, 60, that we have 65,000 
of them every day. And that 90% are repeats from the day before. But yet, because of the proximity of our observation or really not seeing it, we actually think that there's somebody in there who's actually generating those same thoughts every day. Now, if there was a little agent in there, you think they would have those same repeats from the day before. No way. But we make that shift from being just carried along by that stream to noticing it. And we have instantaneously that insight that thoughts are their own thinkers, he said. And then slowly, slowly, I think part number two was the sense of compassion for the predicament that we're all in. The fact that we so, that we that we're also habituated to living in that virtual reality. You can think about it as uh, mistaking the, the version that plays in our mind. That version that plays in our mind is, is somebody who doesn't even exist. It's a, it's a story about us. And it doesn't mean that you don't exist. We're all here in living, full, living, breathing, embodied color. But yet, we live so much in the, in the virtual version and we when we see that more clearly, that, uh, we feel a kind of compassion toward ourselves for being so caught. Whenever I, when I, as I was listening to James last night, I always think of the passage from, I think his name is John J. Audubon. I've been told it was Henry Audubon, then I was told it was James Audubon, who knows what Audubon. But nevertheless, he said in one of his passages, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. And when we often don't believe the bird, we're, we're caught up in that, in, that, um, in that imaginary version. And it takes us for a great ride and our bodies contract around that idea that, and he used the different examples of the judging mind and the comparing mind, and we get to see that. And it, it breaks our hearts how much we are measuring ourselves based on some virtual idea of uh, ideal of perfection or how we should be, could be, would be. And he talked about the deep sense of peace. The deep sense of peace that I like to think of and I actually know to be true is our natural state when we're not in a state of contentiousness with with, our, with what's happening, when we're not in a state of reaction, is that uh, we fall into uh, what is so primary, the very nature of our mind, peace. So we have these insights through the practice of insight meditation. We have all kinds of insights. And the Buddha used the exact same tool. He used, the, he used this natural wakefulness, but he saw that from what he learned, that when directed, when that natural wakefulness is directed, it becomes an extreme uh, observing power. It becomes a liberating power. And he especially emphasized when it's directed to your body it becomes the source of the, it becomes the cause of the end of anguish. Here's what he said. One thing, O monks, and I'm considering you all monks for the purpose of this conversation. One thing, O monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation, what is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So you can see this as an in-the-body practice. If you didn't notice already, I've been feeling for you having to get used to the body, having been a bit wound up and abandoned and, and misused and abused and... Um, and it's, it's hard to settle in, but nevertheless, it is through this body and letting it be felt, letting your mind be in the same location as your body, letting them come together. He continues, 
If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, discursive thoughts are quieted, and all wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge reach fullness of development. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So James also referred to a passage, which is really my last segue into tonight's uh, topic of the Four Noble Truths. He said, within this fathom-long body, and I'll I'll quote the the entire quote, he talked about the fathom-long body. This is how the Buddha put it. Within this fathom-long body, with its inner sense and perceptions, lies the world lies the cause of the world, lies the cessation of the world, and lies the path that leads to the cessation of the world. So our body, within this body, we realize, without this body, no world. And it is our, it is our reactions to what is triggered in our body through the doors of perception, through the senses, that gives rise to this drama, this whole internal drama gives rise to the sense in our minds that I can't be happy now. All that springs from little reactions that are triggered in our body that, we, that then becomes our world. It becomes our internal drama. It becomes the, the, our sense of existence. I'm here. I was there before. I'm passing through here on my way to somewhere else. That's the world. And then the world is everything, all the, the um, strategies, all the projects, all the, all the means, all, the, all that I have to do to become happy. Have you ever had any of those go on in your mind? Any of those plans and strategies and projects and my big issue that I have to work on? And This is the world that gets created in our mind. But it's also within this fathom-long body that we experience the end of the world. When we do come back to the simple, direct sense experience. And we simply hear, as James invited us to hear this morning. In the hearing, there's just hearing. There's no you, there's no me, there's no self at all, there's no suffering at all in that that moment it's experienced. Every single moment of mindfulness, the world ends as we imagine it to be. So the world that we usually think of is not the world. That's the story of the world. The world is where we touch life, where life touches us. That's in that is so intimate, so immediate here. What can you actually say about the world when you just hear, when you just smell, when you just taste, when you just feel? In that direct experience, in that simple experience we keep pointing to, the world ends, and you could say, in some way of talking about it, anguish ends when we're mindful. And he says also in this fathom-long body lies the path to the end of the world. So within this fathom-long body lies, it is the seat of our consciousness. And it is through applying that natural awareness through the navigator of mindful attention that it's a central part of the, what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, we come to the end of the world again and again and again and again. I don't know if this metaphor makes sense or this way of seeing this passage, but I, th- I think you can understand the difference between the simple experience you're having and how far afield your mind goes in your description of the world in your story about the world, in your story about your own situation, and how different that is than the world that is, um, that is, that is right here. 
and I would say it is right here wherever you are, when, it, at, in any place, even not, it's not um, dependent on this retreat center. So, so many insights come as we slow down, use the power of mindful attention. But the Buddha wanted us to basically see these four insights, these four truths that really uh, are the, the keys, you could say, to un, unhinging or unbinding, untangling our hearts from confusion. Because it is, it is clear seeing, it is clear perception that loosens our hearts. And it is clinging that keeps us in a state of, of, um, of anguish. And you can see, I think I used the example in one of the groups or maybe even in the hall, that simply seeing clearly, a simple example is when you realize somebody, many people have spoken in the group about recognizing that they're controlling or holding your breath. When you notice that you're controlling or holding your breath, what do you do when that meets the light of awareness? When you notice it, do you keep holding your breath? Do you keep controlling your breath? Or is it, doesn't your natural intelligence, your natural wisdom become the cause in that moment of breathing again? or letting your breath go. So once you see clearly, even though this is a very simple example and some things are a little, are much more entrenched as habits, but once you see clearly, holding on, clinging, anguish does not make any sense. It becomes absurd to hold your breath once you see what it's, how it's affecting you and seeing that you're doing it. But clinging is based, in general, on, uh, on ignorance. The Buddha called avijja, uh, confusion or ignorance. Not really seeing clearly. And basically, there's three things that we, that we are entrenched at not seeing very clearly. And they are considered the causes of what the Buddha called the three, um, the three poisons, the three root causes of suffering, what otherwise known as greed, hatred, and delusion or ignorance. And three things that we misperceive is, as James spoke about, we perceive that which is constantly changing and impermanent, we, we tend to perceive things as solid, as uh, permanent. We tend to experience things or perceive things as uh, being able to offer satisfaction when they are inherently unsatisfactory, where they cannot give lasting happiness. And that You can think of everything in your life, every, almost every experience, the most delicious to the... Whatever it is that you experience, there is a tendency to be searching and believing that some experience will give you lasting satisfaction. And, and we misperceive it when every experience, anything that can be experienced through our doors of perception, through our senses, uh, are unreliable and unsatisfactory. And the third one, we mistakenly attribute everything to ourselves. We take everything personally. Everything is about me. We take that which is completely selfless, just as our thoughts we were talking about earlier, our feelings, our sensations, this very body, as our friend Jack Cornfield calls this body, a rent-a-body. But yet we take it as me and mine, even though no one has ever found an I in this body. All that we've ever found when we've looked deeply into the nature of our body is a, a sea of changing conditions, constant flux, no me, no mine. That's good news, actually. Because if there's no me, no mine, there's no, there's no other. And we, to seeing through that illusion opens up that sense of connection that we all so deeply long for. No self, no other.
So these three misperceptions give rise to our whole world as we experience it. And what, what the Buddha wanted us to see about this world, about the world that you were born into, with all its, with all its, uh, with your inner sense and your perception, is that this world and everything in it is marked by what he called dukkha, which is sometimes translated as that which is difficult to bear. I think it's incorrectly translated as suffering. It's much more nuanced. It, it is much more accurately translated as unreliable, marked by unsatisfactoriness. It is, as one person put it, the definition of birth is the leading cause of death. If you are born, you, your life is unreliable. If you are healthy, health is unreliable. If you are young, youth is not reliable. And precisely it was though the misperception about this unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness, that drove the Buddha uh, in confusion just like it, it drove us, just like it drives us. But at some point, as you all know the story of the Buddha, he saw the reality of sickness, he saw the reality of old age, saw the reality of death, and realized it was going to happen to him. And in a moment of shock, a moment of being stunned, which rationally seems kind of amazing that you could be stunned, but some, you notice how, I notice how sometimes I can talk about that very casually. Other days, it just strikes me and, I, and it, there's this kind of visceral fear that comes, this kind of grabbing. But that grabbing came in such a powerful force that almost instantaneously in his life, the pride, the identification with youth just vanished. The pride in health vanished. And even the pride in life vanished. There was a kind of letting go. But yet it still awakened in him, as it probably has awakened in you the moments that you've contemplated this. The question, well, what, where is any reliability to be found? Where is lasting happiness to be found in this world that is constantly changing? That is, uh, that every experience you have will come, it will go. Is that what life's about? Being born, dying, having a lot of stuff? <laughs> There's got to be more to that. Well, that led him to, to, to practice. And it turns out later in his teaching, he said, we need to look at this. He died. This is the nature of reality. Because for him, that's what turned him toward, uh, toward looking at the truth of things. Turned him toward clear perception. Remember, clear perception is the cause of the unbinding of the heart. Seeing things as they are. So he didn't just offer a diagnosis. He was sometimes called the great physician. He was... He offered a, a prescription and an unexpected result. And the diagnosis was that the definition of birth is the leading cause of all kinds of stress. Birth, sickness, old age, death, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get. If you're born, you have that. And we need, and his prescription for dealing with that is to open to it, welcome it, because that's how it is. But our tendency is not to is not to do that. We all tend to fall into what one person described as the eighty fourth problem. Have you all heard of the eighty fourth problem? Well, if you haven't, here it is. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work very difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, 
Yes, he loved them, but they weren't quite turning out the way he wanted them to. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how he could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly, And what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. (coughs) We have to get real. Everybody has problems. Everybody here will have frustrated desire and wounded pride. And as Jennifer Wellwood puts it in her poem called The Dakini Speaks, she says, friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Let's, or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human right beings, but please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Woody Allen hedged his understanding a little bit. He said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) How do you feel after hearing Just the facts, like Sergeant Friday and Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. How do you feel? I know when I heard this the first time, even though now when I hear it, it's just so obvious. But when I heard it, I I wept because I was so happy. Somebody was just saying it out loud. Because everything in our culture, which really reflects the second truth that the Buddha offered, everything in our culture is a, as Rumi puts it, is a constant running from silence, a constant running from the truth of things as they are. The Buddha called this, this second noble truth, the cause of suffering is, um, is craving. The word is tanha, craving for uh, sense pleasures, Craving for, I like to call it, craving for what's next. Craving for a state of becoming. Craving for existence. And craving for non-existence. Craving to, for things to stop. And this is what, this craving, this clinging, this, and it hardening into attachment, this is what turns the inherent unsatisfactoriness of our life, the inherent unreliability, turns it into suffering. So life is not inherently suffering. Life is inherently unsatisfactory. 
But what turns it into suffering is our, the mental reaction of wanting the deep pattern, the deep habit that we all play out moment by moment. I was telling Sharda last night that in my uh, long practice periods, even though I thought of myself and other people thought of me as a kind of a kamikaze yogi, really on it all the time, no breaks, no rest, but yet I saw over and over and over, and it was, it was a source of embarrassment and shame, but I saw over and over how I was trying to find comfort, how I was always looking for the, for the, the pleasant experience, always tr- in some subtle way making it easy. And in some way, I can see that with a lot of compassion now. It was a sign of love for myself that I wanted it to be, I wanted an easy, safe passage. But what I, but what I was missing at the time, or what I was realizing at the time and why it became so clear in long-term practice is that it was the very attempt to find relief that was actually increasing my dis-ease. It was actually increasing the difficulty of dealing with the, the difficult things that presented themselves. And it became a very interesting practice to see how much of the time my mind was going, going towards something pleasant, pushing away something unpleasant. And it seemed like it was pretty constant. And there's no rest in that. Because every time I do that, every time my mind responds to liking and disliking. Did any of you have any liking or disliking today? We don't really notice it, but it's these, all we're having are these six experiences, but some of them produce a feeling of pleasure. There's a lot of pleasure. And James was inviting you, I think we've all invited you, to feel that pleasure. The trick is if you actually feel the pleasure, let yourself actually be mindful of the pleasure the pleasure arises and the pleasure passes away. But when we don't have mindfulness of the pleasure, when we don't mix our presentness, our clear comprehension that something is really pleasant, when we don't have that, that mindfulness there, that pleasant triggers a sense of liking, which creates a little charge in our mind, and that liking immediately moves into what? Wanting more. And wanting more creates a, an inner tension. And you can, one of the examples that we often use, I learned this from James many years ago. We have, may have the thought, especially if we've, after a moment of unpleasantness where we had a, a reaction of, of dislike, a little contraction, that spawns a little fantasy of what I need in order to be happy which is, of course, in the middle of a sitting, I need the bell to ring. The bell becomes, in that moment, the secret to happiness. <laughs> and once I've gone from that unpleasant moment of my body hurting and disliking, that disliking spawning aversion to the feeling and then spawning the fantasy of the bell ringing, once I've entered into that that little fantasy, I'm, I've entered into what I call a state of suspended happiness. I'm caught. I can't be happy until that bell rings. And the longer I have to sit here, and I think it's really just, that bell is, becomes more and more important. It becomes central in my pursuit of happiness. I'm hostage, and the bell rings, and everything relaxes. And what we, we often assume is that, and this is what we assume very innocently, is that bell really gave me the pleasure I wanted. That meal gave me the pleasure I wanted. The weekend gave me the pleasure I wanted. The purchase gave me the pleasure I wanted. And... 
we don't realize what actually gives us the, the relief, the pleasure, the sense of satisfaction, is that we're no longer in a state of wanting, is the cessation of wanting, the cessation of waiting, the cessation of being hostage to what happens next. This state of waiting, the state of hoping, the state of craving, the state of wanting is, uh, or aversion. You know, we have this, these pheno- this phenomena on retreats. Veterans all know about this, but those of you who are new, we have two phenomena, phenomenon. One's called the VR, one's called the VV. The VR is triggered by a moment I think I mentioned it the first day about the precept of, of not initiating any social or sensual contact with anybody. But somebody catches your attention. Someone dazzles you with their, the color of their socks or their... <laughs> whatever it might be. <laughs> and that little trigger produces a pleasant feeling. Before you know it, that feeling turns into liking, then it turns into wanting, and that pressure of that builds and off and running in dating, mating, children, marriage, whatever it is. But captive, completely captive, with a full conviction. Of course, desire makes everything look a lot better than it is. But it seems as though that person is the secret to your happiness. But yet, if it's, if it's explored a little bit, that state of, again, a state of craving, which is a state of suspended happiness, state of assuming that something else has to happen in order for me to find relief. I have to get away from here. The best is yet to come. And that is the trick that our mind plays, that what we call, a, it's a hindrance to freedom. It's called a state of, de, it's called the desire for sense pleasures. It's a the face of the, of the mind that's craving. And yet, whatever that person is, whatever that object is, has never truly made anyone happy. And even if a relationship has been consummated as a result of that fantasy, the pleasure of that is, um, is fleeting and it leaves in its wake more dissatisfaction. And what, does, what is our mind conditioned to do when we feel dissatisfied? We generate another desire. And innocently, moment by moment, we, we are born into that world, into the drama of getting of the imagined me that's gone from there through here on our way to, to someplace else. And what does that do to the present moment? It turns the present moment into uh, the only moment that any of us ever have. It turns it into a pass-through on our way to someplace else. It makes us miss the, the richness, the depth the closeness, the connection that we have with life in every moment that could never be improved upon by going somewhere else. This is the state of the, of the wanting mind, the expression of the second noble truth. Cause of suffering is the state of craving, craving for sense pleasures, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. And we, we can, the craving for non-becoming can the extreme version of that is the, the impulse that we have to, to crash, to go to sleep, to shut things off. And the extreme is the suicidal impulse. That is, again, in our heart of hearts, it's a, it's a deep desire for relief. But yet, that um, following that kind of desire hasn't really, can't really give us relief. So the flip side, the aversive side of the, the VR is the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, where somebody, something on the retreat, teachers often, 
<laughs> I have to say, I've gotten some serious hate mail. And it, and it is almost inevitable that at some point in the retreat, we, as our heart relaxes a little bit, we open through, through, as we open through different layers of contraction, we become really vulnerable, really open. And from beginningless time, we've been defending our vulnerability with, with grasping and aversion. We've been making cases for the prosecution for, from the beginning. And so you might notice that something somebody says or... You, I can't believe it, but the, the cooks sometimes get the, the hate mail too. <laughs> the managers. But it could be another yogi. Somebody who comes in late, makes a noise. It's all about me. They're wrecking my practice. And our mind can get, can get going or they're breathing hard or, or they're, whatever it is, a little moment produces an unpleasant feeling. It triggers that, that, uh, that proliferation of, of uh, reactivity and pretty soon that person or that situation is the, the cause of all your suffering. The good news about mindfulness, about this second noble truth, the cause of suffering, that desire for things to be different than the way they are, is that we use the very state of mind that is tormenting us, that is putting us in that state of suspended happiness. We use it as our, what Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, called our manure of Bodhi. We use it as our doorway to a sense of home and a sense of presence, to a sense of freedom. So rather than following the object of the desire, rather than fixating our mind on the pleasure of the bell ringing and associating our well-being with that, instead we withdraw our attention from the object and we feel the state of wanting. Or with a, with a person who you may be fantasizing about. We, the same is true with aversion. We, we uh, withdraw our attention from the object and the story of what they did and how they should have been different or what they should do different, we withdraw from the story and we feel the state of aversion. It comes right back again to mindfulness directed to the body. There's usually a physical corollary. And we feel that. And usually if you feel that state of mind and we don't pay attention to it in order for this to happen, but once that feeling of waiting, wanting, or, or aversion ill will, once, meets, once it meets the light of awareness, it usually reveals itself as a moving, changing condition, like the weather. And that there, then there's nothing to do or undo about that experience. That experience is, by its nature, self-liberating. And you don't necessarily then have to have what you want or get rid of what you don't want. You see that it was all driven by the state of desire and aversion. So the Buddha's recommendation for dealing with this cause of suffering, which then expresses itself with all the different hindrances of worry and restlessness and agitation, because once we, when, we're, when we're in a state of frustrated desire, in a state of aversion, it, it generates a lot of restlessness and it exhausts us. And then we start to have a lot of doubt about ourselves. And in, when it comes in practice, we start to have a lot of doubt about our practice. And what the Buddha recommended that we do about this state of craving, so that this is the diagnosis is that we're caught in this, in this habit of wanting the prescription is to let, learn how to let go, how to let things be. How, and how do we do that? What happens when you apply mindful attention to that experience that's happening? You discover that no experience, no state of mind, no state of, of craving can withstand 
that light of attention. Because in that moment of attention, there's nothing, when you're just paying attention to something and feeling it, there's nothing in your mind feeding it. And then everything reveals itself as changing. And so the most beneficial way of actualizing the experience of letting go is by being mindful. But sometimes it's useful to bring into our attention, to bring into our mind little triggers, little words like let go, let be, as is. One of our favorite teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, said that we should all reduce our practice to two words, letting go. He says, rather than try to develop this practice and go into that and read this and read the sutras and and the Abhidharma, that's Buddhist psychology, learn Sanskrit and Pali and the Majamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Vajrayana, the the Hahyana, whatever, and and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. He says, forget all that. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, let go. He said, I didn't do anything but that for about two years. And when any desire would come, I'd say, let go until the desire would fade out. He says, I'm saving you, in his passage about this, he says, I'm saving you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) So we, we simplify our practice down to two words. But he says, he doesn't say it in a, in a cavalier or a glib way. He says that, that we do this letting go, but we do it under, within the view of a determination to be awake. Not to be conceited or foolish, but uh, determined to be awake and keep reminding ourselves of this capacity of the Buddha, of the Dharma, of the Sangha, and stay with your practice, letting go of everything that happens, letting go of pain, of despair, of whatever arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. And he says, keep that letting go like a constant refrain in your mind, so it pops up on its own no matter where you are. But really the, pra- the, the practice of mindful attention is the is the cause of letting go. Just as I said before, clear percept, mindfulness and clear comprehension are the, the, um, the seed causes of the end of clinging. Because when we see clearly, clinging to that which is obviously changing doesn't make any sense. And this leads naturally to the third truth that the Buddha talked about. which is that there is an end. There is a cessation to suffering. Cessation to this tight, uh, clinging, grasping, and attachment that burdens our mind in relationship to our experiences. And the prescription for this third noble truth, the end, otherwise known as the end of suffering, the prescription is to realize it. And in real time again, when we experience whatever it is that's happening in your mind and body, without pushing it away, without grasping, allowing things to come and go, without, without adding the sense of identity, without making it all about me, without making it all about mine, you can, in this very moment, recognize the, the end of suffering. Just notice, even now, after, if you don't look ahead, some of you are probably waiting to the end of the talk, if you don't look ahead and you don't look back and you're just here in the room, aware, aware of being aware, and you're not consulting your memory, 
I ask you, where is, where is the suffering? As one of my teachers, H.W.L. Punja, said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. And, the, and we didn't do it. There was no trick involved here. All we did for a moment is we, we practiced a little mindfulness. And we, we, didn't, we didn't enter into virtual reality. We didn't enter into the imaginary version of ourselves that, that is all about why I can't be happy now. And this simple moment is the end of, of clinging. It's a moment of letting go. From the Buddha, for one who clings, motion exists. For one who clings not, there's no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there's no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where neither coming nor going is, there is neither arising or passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world, nor a world beyond, nor a state in between. This is the end of suffering. This is the joy of nirvana. When the Buddha realized this in a much, in a more profound way, a total cessation of the, of the um, continual ser- search for happiness uh, that kept him bound on that wheel of samsara, he let out a song. And he, his song reflects the realization that each time that he got caught in that, in that, in that um, trance of overshooting the present moment, of thinking that something else had to happen in order to be happy, every time he entered into that, uh, he, that it was suffering. And he saw through that, that habit. And he let out this amazing, joyous song And it goes like this. He said, through many births, you know, we keep being born into these ideas. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha is birth again and again. Oh, house maker, you've been seen. You shall not make a house again. All your beams are broken up. Rafters of the ridge destroy. The mind gone to the unconditioned. To cravings, cessation, it has come. This is the end of suffering. He didn't stop here. said, there's a path. And I've been alluding to it all along. The path, the noble eightfold path, where we, through our practice of mindful attention, we purify our actions, we purify our mind, and we purify our view until we realize that we don't exist apart from each other and our life becomes motivated by love, compassion, wisdom, and we stop adding to the burden that's heavy enough. And that this is something that we, is in our power, that our minds are trainable. The Buddha said, if, we, if, if this was not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And... Uh, We'll talk much more about the Noble Eightfold Path, but, um, but this is what we're doing here. And I'll just end with a couple little passage lines from Hafiz, where he says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. And you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So let's just sit quietly for a minute.
May all of us and all beings everywhere realize the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. Have a half hour for walking practice. Please enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.